When I was in high school, I stayed the night with a friend. While I was gone for the night, my mom made an egg sandwich before bed. While she was standing over the stove, she had a realization that she was going to die in her sleep that night. She panicked for a few moments, but she regained her composure, and a strange sense of peace and contentment came over her. She had let the eggs burn during those moments of distress, and having lost her appetite, she scraped them out of the skillet and into the trash. My mother was sentimental. She would have wandered through the house. I imagine her taking in every memento and artifact from the life she and my father had built. She would have stood in my bedroom remembering the defining moments of my then young life. She would have imagined the things that she'd miss. My graduation, bringing home boyfriends from college, starting a career, my wedding and her eventual grandchildren. Those were my mother's hopes for me. It must have broken her heart to know that she'd miss them. She would have felt a strange nostalgia for something that had yet to happen. Isn't that a strange thing that we do? We miss things that haven't happened yet. She sat out front and read the last chapter of a book in the porch light. She'd only started it that morning. She'd barely gotten a quarter of the way through, but the plot had just started moving and she wanted to know how it would end. She wouldn't have time to enjoy the middle of the story. When she was finished, the fog would have been forming, obscuring everything at a certain distance, making things fuzzy at the edges. When she finished her book, she looked up and down the street. The fog had thickened a bit. It had been a little life, a quiet one, uneventful but nonetheless brimming with meaning and emotion and love. It was one that had been worth having. She took consolation in that. She tidied up the house and brushed her teeth. She put on a comfortable but modest nightgown. She tried not to think of the strangers who would be picking apart her home tomorrow. All of those strange hands on her, moving her, inspecting her. The first responders, police, coroner. This would be the only impression they'd have of her, who she was and how she lived. She wanted it to be a good one. My father was out of town on business. He had been gone more often lately. He had left the number for the hotel by the phone in the kitchen, and she called asking the front desk clerk for his room. He wasn't in, so she left a message. It was short and uncomplicated. I was just thinking of you. I wanted to say goodnight, and I love you. She wanted him to remember her that way. Not afraid, not panicked. She knew that I'd be home in the morning, which meant that I'd be the one to find her. She left the note she'd written for me on the nightstand. It was similar to the message she left for my dad. And she took one last look around her bedroom. Simple, uncomplicated. She wondered what it would be. A heart attack, stroke. She tried not to dwell on it as she sat on the edge of her bed. The mementos the artifacts. And with that, my mother put her head back and lay down to sleep. My mother would wake up the next morning. She looked over at the note she'd left me on the nightstand, opened the drawer, 
and dropped it inside with about a dozen other notes just like it. I know about the notes because I found them in her nightstand once when I was a kid, and she'd left them out from time to time. She never talked about it, but I knew about her panic attacks, and I put it all together. I thought there were a lot of them back then, but now there was a cardboard box full of them. She'd kept writing them all these years I've been gone, still assuming it would be me to find her. Maybe just never satisfied with the last goodbye, the last false start. Little scraps of paper, hundreds of them. There was a cardboard box full of them by the time I made my way back home. There was one on the nightstand when I walked through the house. Sorry about the garage, it read, referring to the clutter that had accumulated there. It was heartfelt, but you wouldn't know that if you'd never met her. My mother had severe anxiety. That anxiety kept her from a lot of things in her life. It made her feel like an outsider. I feel like an outsider too. I never really felt at home in Olive Hill, and that's why it was so easy for me to leave to Lexington and again to New York. But I've never really felt at home in New York either. When I first arrived, I faked an American Standard accent so I didn't stick out when I spoke. I also did it to improve my odds during job interviews, even long before it was my job to talk into a microphone. A certain set of assumptions follows you when you sound like people from my part of the world. So I faked it, until I didn't have it anymore, until it just became the way I talk. Even though I sound like I fit in, it didn't translate to feeling like I belong. My coworkers went to Ivy League universities and exclusive prep schools. My high school didn't have air conditioning. I didn't finish college. I'm good at this, though. I'm really good at it. But I'll never belong. Are we destined to spend our lives chasing that sense of safety and security and belonging we had as children, if we were lucky enough to have it at all? Are we searching for something that's not coming? Am I overthinking a feeling that everyone experiences? I don't know. These thoughts and memories race through my mind as I make the drive to Olive Hill to talk with Carla. Ricky had given me the basics over the phone. He was remarkably forthcoming, seeing as how he wouldn't talk to me, even when I was banging on his door the week prior. I guess something had changed his mind. He told me he learned about the kidnapping when he found the tapes a few years ago. Of course, he knew the rumors, but he was furious when he learned that his mother was involved. He said they went years without speaking after he originally confronted her about them. When I came back to town to investigate those three days in the summer of 2001, he was worried that Lisa Banks, his first love, his last real relationship, was going to be humiliated and exploited all over again like she always had been when reporters came around. But with me, he saw an opportunity to get justice for her. He'd not been able to help her back then, but he could do something now, even if it meant throwing his mom under the bus. Carla went on a binge after I left Ricky's house back in episode four. That led to an overdose that nearly killed her. She'd earned herself a stay in the hospital, but ended it abruptly and prematurely against doctor's orders. When I arrived, she'd been home less than an hour. We're recording. 
Before this, I was sober for 21 years. Do you know why I'm here? Yeah, hun. I know why you're here. I need you to be more specific. Can you tell me why you think I'm here? Because you watched the tapes that Ricky sent you. That's right. Carla, was that Lisa Banks on those tapes? You know, I didn't lie to you before. Not outright, anyway. When I think back to that time, I know that I was that person. But I don't relate with her anymore. It's hard to put myself back in that mindset, to acknowledge that that was me. It's not like I forgot that girl and what we did. It's like when you're in recovery and you think back at who you were as an addict. You know that was you, but it doesn't feel like it was real life. It's like remembering something you did in a dream. It's completely you, but it isn't you either. When we talked that first time about mercy and light, it didn't even come to mind that I was a part of that. That's how distant I feel from it today. That's not who I am anymore. What do you mean you feel like it was a dream? It means that who I was when that happened is so different from who I am today that it might as well have been a different person. You were younger than them, weren't you? Do you feel like you're the same person you were when you left this town? No, but I was a child then. Everyone changes from who they were in high school. At least they should. I was a kid when I got hooked. My development was stunted. I didn't mature as a person all those years. I was 14 when the drugs got really bad. When I finally got sober, it was 1997. When you live like I did and then clean up at 29 years old, you're a child trapped in an adult's body. I started going to the church's AA and NA meetings, and that's where I really started building bonds with some of the church members. When I first cleaned up, I didn't know how to start putting my life back together. The people in that church were the ones to help me get back on my feet. For everything they did wrong, every kind of bullshit they believed and taught, they were good at making you feel like you belonged, like you were a part of something. It took me a long time to learn to trust them. I didn't trust anyone when I was an addict, but they put in the time and had so much patience with me and they kept every promise and they earned my trust. Once they had me, I was in 100%. They were my family. And if these people were right about how to get me clean after so many times I'd tried to do it myself, if they were right about that, then maybe they were right about everything else too. After a while, I got to be part of their inner circle. They started to trust me too. They trusted me with the kinds of things you saw on that tape. Addicts are so impressionable. You're so vulnerable coming out of that lifestyle. There's shame and there's guilt, but they told me that all the bad things I'd done could be erased. Just like that. If they could fix me, which felt like a miracle all on its own, maybe they really did have some direct line to the all-powerful God of the universe. I don't think that was fake. I don't think that they were trying to manipulate me. They really believed it, 
and they really believed that we could save this town. That's the scary thing. If it were just a bunch of hateful people who were full of shit, that's one thing. These were true believers. And if they were right about all of that, maybe they were right about what needed to be done to save that poor girl. That's what I thought back then. If they could fix me, then maybe we could fix her. But that was the tail end of it for me. I was already starting to lose my passion for what we were doing. I was feeling burned out. I'd made some friends outside of the church, and they seemed to have a better head on their shoulders. It had been a few years. The fog in my head from the drugs had finally cleared. I was growing up, and I was becoming more uncomfortable with what we were doing. Those couple days with Lisa were the final straw. So it was Lisa Banks on those tapes? Yeah, it was her. Can we back up a little bit? Can you explain to me what we're seeing on those tapes? It was an intervention. Like an exorcism? It's like an exorcism, except no one knows what they're doing. That word had a lot of baggage for some of the mercy and light folks, but an intervention was basically an exorcism. What were you all trying to accomplish? You know exactly what we were doing. This works better if you say it. You knew the rumors about Lisa. Those people thought that she was possessed by demons or she was a witch. Any number of crazy things. Did you believe it? I don't know. I'm not being... I'm not trying to be difficult. But I really don't remember if I believed it at the time. I'd absolutely believed what they thought of her. But like I said, I was starting to grow away from them. I think what you saw on those tapes was the last of me trying to hold on to what I believed. I was hoping I'd see a miracle, some kind of darkness lift out of her. All we did was scare the shit out of that poor girl. That was the final straw. Weren't you afraid of getting caught? Was it worth the consequences if the police were to knock down the door and catch you all holding her against her will? That was never gonna happen. Because the police were members? Not all of them were. Not because of the police. No one was looking for her. It was her mom's idea. She brought her to us. Angela Banks thought that she was possessed. She said that Lisa hadn't been Lisa for years. Most of her life, even. And that no one believed her. She wanted us to drive the demons out so she could get her daughter back. You can't be serious. Cross my heart. What did Lisa say to you at the end of the tape? She'd been silent the whole time, at least as far as the recordings show. But at the end, she was crying. It looked like she was making a confession. What was she saying? What happened at the end? She told us what was going to happen to them. That day, I thought she was just saying anything to get us to let her go. But after they disappeared... What exactly did Lisa say to you? She said that her mom was right. She was actually Violet Hale. She said that the two of them used to play in the forest and that they made friends with some girls that lived out there. The girls that lived in the forest looked just like Lisa and Violet. It's like they had long lost twins. 
She said they were playing, and they fell down a hill, a long fall. They were only like seven or eight years old. They were really young. She said they both died that day. And the next thing she knew, she was waking up, and the two girls that lived in the forest, the ones that were their twins, she said that they had brought her and Violet back to life. But when they did, they put the spirits back in the wrong body. The girls that brought them back were gone when they woke up. Lisa said they were scared, and they looked all over for them to try to get them to fix it, but they couldn't find them anywhere. So Lisa and Violet made a deal. They went home with the other one's family so no one would know the difference. They thought that they would get in trouble for going that far out in the forest. They'd go home with the other family until they figured it out. They saw the other girls in the forest all the time, so they figured as soon as they found them, they'd get them to fix it, to put them back in the right body. They thought it would be over in just a couple of days, but she said she never saw them again, that they were gone. She told us that after that, the two of them sometimes woke up out there at the bottom of the hill. They'd sleepwalk out there. They'd stop what they were doing and just walk into the forest. Carla, that sounds insane. Look, that was one week to the day, to the day before those girls walked into the forest and never came back. How would Lisa know to make up that kind of story about herself and Violet? She specifically said Violet. Just a week before they both happened to walk into the forest in the middle of the night. She didn't know that that was going to happen to them. So how do you explain her just making that up? Don't you think that's a hell of a coincidence? Or it's a false memory that you've developed over the years to cope with having held that girl hostage a week before her death. Or maybe it's a coincidence, and if that's the case, sure. It's a hell of a coincidence, but that's all it is. I can't make you believe me, and I don't really care if you do. But something drew them out there. Something took over and brought them out into the forest. So why did you let her go? What made you all decide that you were done? Were you satisfied at the end of it? I didn't have any say in it, no, but of course they weren't satisfied. They wanted to drive the demons out of that girl. So why didn't you? Because her mom told us to stop. Carla was in a difficult state of mind. I get that. And I realized that I got a little heated during that interview. It's hard to tell how much of what she said was withdrawal and the fog that hadn't yet cleared from her binge. But here's the thing. Violet's journals described exactly what Carla had told me. Did Carla read the story Violet wrote? Violet didn't mention in her journal that the fairies were identical to her and Lisa. Anthony was the only person to tell me that. I reached out to Anthony to ask if he was in touch with Carla. You've reached Anthony Bledsoe. Leave me a message, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But I wasn't having any luck. I tried to follow up with Ricky Allen. Listen, I'm sorry, but I can't help you anymore. You can't, or you won't? Look, I've put my mom through enough already, and I'm done. You had to know what would happen when you turned those tapes over to me. I knew about what happened to those girls in the forest. Lisa told me about that. But, but I didn't, but she didn't tell me that my mom had kidnapped her. 
Can you imagine how uncomfortable she must have felt around me after that? And we only had one more week together. Do you know what I would have given to have gotten to spend those two days with her? Instead, she's tied to a goddamn chair, interrogated by the love of her life's batshit crazy mother. But it wasn't just mom. There are a dozen other people on that tape that were responsible too, and they stole that time from us. And then, after she was gone, they went on blaming her for it. I can't even wrap my head around that level of arrogance. I wanted to tell her story in a way that hadn't been told before. To talk about the real girl and not the ghost story. I've done that and it almost cost my mother her life. So I'm done now. I'm sorry I can't help you anymore. Ricky, you've definitely told her story in a way that it's never been told before. You should be very proud of that. I just, I have one more question for you. It's just to clarify what you said. Okay. You said that you knew about what happened to those girls in the forest. Not about the kidnapping, but about what happened in the forest. You didn't say it like you heard it from your mom. It sounded like you were saying that Lisa told you something. Do you know what happened to Lisa and Violet? I'm leaving Esther. I'm leaving Olive Hill for good. I should have done it a long time ago. Please don't contact me again. I couldn't shake something about my conversation with Carla. She and Anthony both knew details from Violet's journal. They'd independently confirmed them without having seen it. Had they been in contact? Something else had been bothering me. I went back to the front desk at my hotel in Lexington. If I was lucky, Caitlin would be on duty. Hey, Esther! Hey there. You look worried. Is everything okay? I don't know. Maybe you can help me. I had a package delivered to me a couple of days ago, and I tried to figure out who left it. Do you all keep video from your cameras? Yeah, we keep them. What was delivered? Is something wrong? I don't know. Well, let's see what we can figure out. A few minutes later, I was in a small office behind the front desk. I told Caitlin the date and about what times I left and returned the morning I met with Ricky. She was searching the video in between for someone dropping off a manila envelope. So what you were asking me about yesterday, about what happened to Mercy and Light, were you talking about the little boy? Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, his family was with Mercy and Light. He got sick. I don't remember what he had. I remember it took a long time, though. They convinced his family that he didn't need to go to the doctor, that they were being tested, and that if their faith was real, God would heal their little boy. When he got sicker, they told them that it was part of the test, but God would heal him. Do you blame Mercy and Light for what happened? No, I blame his parents. When your kid is sick, you go to the fucking doctor. You don't let someone talk you out of it. Why are you focused on Mercy and Light? Do you think the girls were possessed like they said? Do you think that's why they walked into the forest? No. Do you? No. I don't believe in demons. But there's something in that forest. As if on cue, a familiar face walked up to the desk carrying a manila envelope. Ricky had said the person dropping off the tapes was a trusted friend. Oh my god. Is that who I think it is? It was Anthony Bledsoe. This is Olive Hill.